Professor Maria Rosaria Belgiorno is currently Associate Senior Researcher at the Institute of Heritage Science of the National, Italian National Council of Researchers in Rome, Italy, and Director of the Italian Archaeological Mission in Birgos in Cyprus. Maria Rosaria is author of 12 books and even more than 100 papers on scientific review magazines and has organized uh, many events and exhibitions in Italy, Cyprus, and Europe on the Birgos Mavroraki site and material. And so it is uh, my pleasure to have Professor Maria Rosaria with us here today. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andreas. Very nice to meet you and to be invited for this interview. Again, thank you so much. And so I want to start off where um, with, with your book, because I, I did read your book. It's called From Birgos to Francois Coty. And as someone who's never heard of Francois Coty, it's, but I, I do know of Birgos, I can, I can assume, I can infer that you're trying to make a connection between the past to more, le- more or less the present. So what I was going to ask you to start off this, this conversation is, what did you set out to establish? I mean, and who is Francois Coty and how would Cyprus or Birgos be connected in any way to, uh, to him? Now, uh, just to start, uh, the link uh, and the meaning of my book is indicated in the title. I refer to the long journey through the centuries of a perfume produced in Cyprus, whose mythical charm lasted for centuries until it became an olfactory family in 1917 by Francois Roti. In reality, the original composition of the perfume is unknown, and different recipes of the Ciprinum of Theophrastus, Pliny, and Dioscorides, based on Hena, are mixed with others based on Cyprus Esculentus, which according to the linear B-tablets, Mycenaean linear B-tables of Pilo, is more ancient. History tells us that a perfume called Kypros continued to circulate undisturbed before and after the Roman Empire and the early medieval period. When Richard I of England assumed the title of King of Cyprus, in 1191, a perfume named Houthi Cypre was introduced in Europe. But the first official recipe dates back to 1764, introduced by Antoine Cournot. Meanwhile, other scented products had invited the European market accompanied by the nomination of Cypre or Cyprine, that gave them a particular charm, including the powder of Cyprus, what the wine known as Cypria, scented with Cyprus esculentus and iris root. In 19th century Europe, apothecary shops sold eau de Cypre by processing the Ornon formula, according to the ingredients available, and until the 1857, Fertinius Piesse wrote the formula and what he called the old-fashioned sip. 
In the following years, we are at the end of the 19th century, Guerlain, Leben, Rimmel, and Bihara presented their Cypre with similar recipe. But also in the end, Couture interpreted all the circulating formulas by adding Okmos in the base and establishing the canons of the Cypre olfactory family. This is why Couture is in the middle. As this story shows, it is not the old Kypros formula that survived, but the place where the legendary Shent was born. You mentioned the, the, uh, in your book, you talk about the olfactory families. And for someone who doesn't know anything about perfume and, and cologne and all that, I was very surprised to learn that of all those different families, for example, musk being one of them, that Cyprus is the, uh, rather, there's only one olfactory family that is from a region, and that is Chypre. And that is where Cyprus is unique in that, in that regard. Something uh, different, because now the per- all the perfumes belong to one different olfactory family today, including Cypre, which conserved this position of olfactory family also when Fragonard reduced the number from 10 to 7. But considering the fact that Cyprus is a small island in the Mediterranean, very little known in the world, the survival of the name linked to a family of perfumes is a unique fact. Perhaps only because the reputation, its reputation as an island of perfume has been preserved through the millennia. It's suffice to say that although uh, France considers itself the home of all perfumes, no factory family bears the name, her name or the name of France. Without considering 100 not official branded perfumes, from the end of 19th century of this year, until 2014, the perfume encyclopedia reports around 300 official branded perfumes named Cypre. But the number belonging to the Cypre family today are thousands. Some very famous, as for example, Cabochard of Grey, Mitsuko of Guerlain, Paul of La Florent, and the Femme of Rochard. So it's, uh, it's something which happened. Uh, or peculiar in the, in the brands at the beginning of the 20th century. François Coty, in reality, he didn't uh, not uh, rediscover the, the Cypre, but he only reinterpreted the, the formulas. Mm, I see. She's time, recognizing in the lambda, no, here is Okmos Cyprus, Bergamot, and other things he in the list of based composition, a short of notice perfect to, to belong, to constitute an olfactory family. So he created Cypre. And this is very is a fantastic thing because he created a perfume. He created Cypre, giving birth to a masterpiece that will invade the world market until belonging the 35% 
of all the other perfumes sold. And this is an historic event that will never be repeated, not even for the very famous, we all know, Chanel Number no. 5. So I didn't realize that, that Chanel Number no. 5, I, I am aware of Chanel Number no. 5, but that is a Chypre-based uh, scent. Yeah, no, not the Sactri, it's a floral, but it's okay, it's uh, belonging, uh, side belonging to the Cypre. Your work, it deals with experimental archaeology, which, again, not something I, I would come across far too often, you know, especially since I am not an archaeologist. But could you explain to me and to listeners what exactly experimental archaeology is? Because that is really important to your work uh, that, you've, that, you, that you do and that you continue to do in Cyprus and abroad. Experimental archaeology is a new archaeological research system. It's not really new, but it's a research system accredited all over the world, actually, just to see the, the site in Internet of Exarch. Uh, it's a, a, an organization who collects the most important uh, for experimental archaeology. So now the... the the center counts thousands of scholars, hundreds of, of centers. I met of verify. This is the, the things to verify the veracity of the archaeological hypothesis. In fact, in the absence of certain historical data and archaeological different archaeological interpretation, are all based on hypotheses and theories. The only system is to make experiments. Because when the experimental evidence agree with the hypothesis or the theory, we can say that this is true. So you can apply for every theory, archaeological theory or hypothesis with the double question mark after. Now your your work is recreated. Uh, I've seen a lot of a, a lot of the pictures. It's recreated in Cyprus. Are you able to say that it is very faithful to how it would have been produced thousands of years ago, or do we know and acknowledge that there's a lot of missing gaps in this experimental archaeology that we're unfortunately not able to to understand right now? Now, the, the diff there is a lot of a difference because, of course, we can try to follow the, the ancient system using uh, the, uh, the same objects and the same precision. But, of course, we don't have the same material often. So, uh, but if you, you recreate the, the environment, I mean, for example, uh, a furnace uh, in a pit in the, on the ground, and you make the replicas of the objects they used um, using the same ingress, for example, clay, and then the, what you found, really, you cannot know, know if there are, they used other things. And using all together, and in any case, it works. It means that the, your theory, your hypothesis on reconstructing a position to produce something is correct. What you've done at Birgos and what you've discovered at Birgos is, is incredibly fascinating. So 
But I want to start off then by talking about Cyprus's role in perfumery and its connection uh, with Aphrodite. And what I want to know is, is there a connection between the two? And, you know, how intertwined are stories of herbs and scents in mythology? You know, it's very tempting to want to say that, well, of course, you know, perfume is is so important in Cyprus because it is the birthplace of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And, and it makes sense that the two are so intertwined. Is it too much to hope that that's the case? Or could we say there is a there is a direct connection between the goddess of love and perfumery in ancient Cyprus? Now, it is very, very difficult to affirm this. You have to think that the connection between Cyprus, Aphrodite, and the perfume belongs and was sanctioned by Hesiod in 8th century BC, and not before. So regarding this, regarding Hesiod, we have two possibilities. Is it likely that Hesiod invented everything? Or... There was already a reputation for it, based mostly on the trade in spaces and cosmetics. This is the question. So, after all, a female deity similar to Aphrodite was already circulating and venerated throughout the Mediterranean, everywhere. Albeit with different names, of course, when we have the names not in Cyprus. We have no other data that can assign to the character of the goddess Aphrodite, the sanctuary of Kukla, a very famous uh, sanctuary, and, and, and belonging to the end of the second millennium BC, which only after a century became the pilgrimage destination, which recorded a on the, on the writers, on the history. So without even having exhibited and never an iconic image of the goddess, except the black betty that according to the tradition and the coins, uh, they are, even in the museum, there are the coins back to the, to the stone, the black stone, representing Aphrodite for the tradition. Because we have the coins of Paphos with the temple and the black stone mm-hmm. on the coins, but not the representation of the female of the goddess. So we have no explicit connection between Cyprus, Aphrodite, and of course the perfumes. Because all, if they are connected, the three things are connected, and if you take out one, the other, one, the other two are not connected. So this, you have to think that uh, we, if you want to speak about the perfume, is another thing. But this connection is something very, very fun. Even in Cyprus, it's very difficult to find a sculpture of the goddess. There is one, but it's not, it's a small size, it's a medium size, it's a small size of, of a part of a, of a, of a Statues and figurines in marble, and they use, of course, we know everybody knows very well, but there are not a production of the of the goddess or imagining of the goddess, mm-hmm. and this is significant. 
So it, what the goddess they they used to venerate and look. I, I am using the verb venerate, which is the name Latin name of Aphrodite. It means you know the action to thanks to ask something to a goddess. There is a, a black stone remain the black stone for centuries and centuries. So if you, you want to call that stone Aphrodite, it's different from the Aphrodite we know from Greece, Sicily, Italy, and so on. Mm-hmm. That is, is really different. Now, speaking of Latin, because you, know, you just said venere, to venerate from Venus, the very word perfume comes from Latin as well, perfumum which signifies to, to smoke, would imply a religious element. So what is the significance of perfume, in, especially in antiquity? Could we, could we assume that it is mostly a religious, um, or, or at least originally, it could have been a religious element to perfume? Now, the, because the perfume is a Latin late word, and we, everybody knows that, that it means uh, perfume. But before the Roman period, the perfume had a different name. For example, in the Mycenaean linear B tables, so we are at the end of the second millennium BC, we found another word. We found the word tuweha for perfume. And we found the Aripa for ointment, perfume, and ointment. So completely different. After we have to arrive in the Arctic period, Greek period, we found the word mir, M-Y-R. And that is not far from the current Greek mirodia. Mirodia, mirodia, sorry for the accent. Certainly the word has connection with the mir the well-known perfume and the resin, but it is still debating which of the two derives its name from the other. So they are still discussing. Mm-hmm. The result is that many fragrant plants in recorded in the, normally have mir as a suffix, meaning perfume. But mm-hmm. considering the importance that the perfume had have had in all religions, I examined the composition of the word mirror according to the Bible mm-hmm. and the Hebrew alphabet. Advancing the hypothesis that the word is composed of three Hebrew letters. Mem, M, meaning the hidden. Yod, meaning the creation. And Ra, meaning the creator. So, just is my opinion. It is the most suitable word to identify the perfume as the origin of the life and the emanation of God. But it's only my interpretation. In, in Egypt, fragrances we know were monopolized by pharaohs or, or priests. In Cyprus, then, what do we know about the access to perfume in Cyprus? Were were scents were some scents exclusive to certain groups, or was it more democratized? If I can use that word, was it accessible to anyone? 
And if so, like, how do we know? Like, what, what do we base this evidence on? But Cyprus, if, uh, it depends from which period we want to compare with Egypt, of course. If the period is the Pyrgos one, so I mean at the beginning of the second millennium BC, Cyprus did not adorn any evidence of domestic perfume uh, trade or a male or female use until very late. But the large quantity of perfume, fials and bottles, found in the tombs of every order and grade of people without excluding the children graves, confirms that every social class had probably equal issues to perfumes. Perhaps because they were produced at the home? This is the question. Maybe. Now, would this change over over the, the centuries? Because you did mention it depends on the period. And Pyrgos is primarily, um, if I'm not mistaken, the Bronze Age. Later on in into the classical or, or later on into the Roman periods, does, does that change or does it remain uh, more or less the same? I think probably something changes. You have to think that after in the, the first millennium BC, the domination of uh, Cyprus uh, belongs to so many different uh, uh, countries around that, of course, they're important. They use different costumes, uh, even the, the use of perfumes. For, for, for sure, they, they change it in any case. Now, something that I'm sure a lot of listeners are, are wondering right now are, about the smells associated with with Cyprus. I mean, as I read in your book, there was some really interesting finds, pine resin, oregano, even parsley. Are, are these the typical smells that you found in your in your work that and 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 what other herbs were used as well to create the the perfumes? Just I I some of it we think of it as food, but may have been used as ways of, of adding to the perfume. Now, the fragrance uh, that archaeometric research found, uh, because it's archaeometric research, in the Pirco samples cannot be considered in the number of products uh, exported from Cyprus in the Middle Bronze Age because we have no archaeometric comparison, other archaeometric comparison made on contemporary finds, for example, from, from Egypt, from Greece, from Lebanon. While for the latter periods, and this is the difference, we have the receipts of, very later periods, of Theophrastus, Pliny, and Euscurides, which confirm the survival of Cyprus as a place, look, as a place that produced and exported perfumes. This is what we know for sure, that Cyprus was sporting. Mm-hmm. From these records, we can say that most were green plants because they, they, they make the list of the plants. So general green plants, such as, for example, pine, marjoram, coriander, rosemary, and these are, but not what we found in Pyrgos is something you cannot put together I mean, uh, uh, what I remind when we made the analysis 
is that we used to find generally, more frequently, the pine together with something else. Turpentine with something else. But the base was that. And the other things, probably the oil of pine turpentine was the vehiculant. I mean, the courier of the other. It's just an hypothesis. We never found a receipt, even because you, you cannot speak about a receipt if you don't have a written record, you know, or you can com- have a, a comparison with another archaeometry uh, analysis made on a similar object, perhaps even from Cyprus, of the same period, and you find the same, the same things. This did not happen. <laughs> we don't have anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to understand a little bit more that it really depends on the period that we're talking about as well. We get more information later on into the Roman periods when we have texts uh, such as the ones that you mentioned from Pliny. Were, sense more, were some sense more masculine and some more considered feminine? Uh, for example, scents derived from oak moss, would that have been more likely worn by uh, a male as opposed to a female? Now, it's just that case of a Roman period, which is sure, I mean. Oak moss is a unique case. Since the Romans considered masculine, the moss grown on the oak tree, not only the oak tree, but that, which in Latin is called vis genitive robberies, vis robberies. Like the same name they give to the physical and moral strength, therefore masculine. From the Latin word muscum and the Greek word mosklos, it seems to come the synonym musk which identified the perfume containing oak moss considered masculine. For the others, we have no precise reference on male or female preferences. We can only suppose that the most expensive perfumes were prerogative of the rich and exhibited of a status symbol in precious containers. And we have records of this in the late... Uh, records of the Latin writers. And uh, even uh, the most important people used uh, to to shame themselves uh, even too much, using everything. Got one last question for you about the Latin period, and then we'll, we'll dive into your work at Virgos. There are as far as I can tell, actual perfume, uh, named perfumes from the from the Roman period, Ciprinum and Amarikinon. What do we know about those, those scents and why and how are they associated specifically with Cyprus? And are we able or have we ever been able to re- recreate those scents? Now, the, the two perfumes belong to uh, the late Romans, the first century uh, of this uh, of our epoch, and so as a Plinio, and uh, we have different receipts of a Pliny and the Dioscorides are not the same, are different. 
and uh, they mention sip like the country who used to sell this kind of perfumes and uh, but the American one, for example, is Majoran, is something uh, even belonging to stories of uh, different stories on the mythology of Cyprus. In any case, uh, uh, there is uh, a, a lot of discussion about both of them. But what is interesting is that the, the position to make this perfume starts from wine. Uh, they start from wine and including after slowly, slowly the different ingredients. And this is interesting. And the moving uh, to different interpretation also about what we found in Pyrgos. Because to, in Pyrgos, uh, we found in the, in the room, as the large room uh, of the Holy Press, Alfa was uh, had the perfumery, the 14 pits full of the small jugs with the oil and other kind of plants inside. But it, we found the, the alambics, but the nearby the alambics. We found also a, an enormous jar, characteristic jar for wine. And uh, and around a lot of of um, grapes seeds everywhere. So uh, from the beginning wow. we question if they use it wine to to make the the perfume or to mix or even to to prepare something for example maceration and then make the distillation all together. In this case, we can obtain something very light with a cologne. So something which has some alcohol inside. And it's more simple to make a perfume, obtain perfume using wine and distillation with herbs than making essential oils. Because essential oils is a very difficult and very peculiar to make. You cannot make because to, to have few millimeters of essential oils, you have to employ tens of kilos of the plants. And you don't, we did not find such kind of large, enormous uh, devices to work this. But if you want to obtain something which is in the middle of a perfumed water and the ointments, perfumed oils, maybe it's possible, and we are, I am making uh, uh, some experiments, to, to use the wine. And we found the receipts and the formula with the wine in the text of Dioscorides. So could we say, I mean, I know uh, perfume and, uh, and cologne nowadays, most, most often they have like an alcohol base. Um, could we say with confidence that the original perfumes from Birgos, which we are going to talk about um, in a second, would have always had uh, an alcohol base, um, as, you, as you sort of alluded to with, with reference to wine? Uh, alcohol, you cannot shake. Of course, 
uh, even after 4,000 years. But the, maybe yes, because alcohol is, is even today, you have to, to look at the system, of today's system, to, to obtain, to exploit aroma. So is the, is the, is the ingredients, is something we, we can use to take the, the terpenes, the fats part of the aroma of the plants, of the smell, perfumes, and to extract that. And, uh, and you don't need a lot of quantity of essential oils to make a perfume, just one drop. But you cannot check at the time the, the, olive, uh, the essential oils because it's uh, uh, very thin drops. But you can, you can take such thin drops using alcohol, using wine. So the wine transfer take out the, the essential oils from the plant, even two, three together, and you obtain, of course, a, a light liquid, including this part, a very tiny part of essential oils, but you have the perfume. This is the difference. So we don't know exactly, and this is, this is why now is interesting and important to use experimental archaeology. Now, speaking of which, I, I want to shift gears now to the, the incredible work that you did at Birgos. And so for those listening, Birgos is a small little village in the Eparchia, the, the province, I suppose, of Limassol, just outside of the city. It is there that you first came across this uh, perfumery, for, for a, a lack of a better word. But you actually called the discovery of the Birgos complex, before we talk about what was there, you called it multidisciplinary. You used archaeometry, paleobotany, archaeological uh, research. So I just want to start off by asking what went into this excavatory work? How and why was it necessary to involve all these different disciplines in the excavation. The excavation of Pyrgos revealed from the beginning the presence of anomalies is visible. Compared to other sites just excavated, whose structures and architecture mainly concerned the houses, village houses. The foundation the architectural remains, in fact, of Pyrgos concern a small industrial complex, probably the center of the settlement of the Middle Bronze Age, but they are on various older occupations set directly on the pillow lava, some of which date back to the Neolithic period. All included in an archaeological level that only in some points exceed one meter because the, the soil, the, the rain can sell, take out all the soil. It is a rare and complex context with what, what we found that required more specialized investigation than those of a normal archaeological excavation. But I belong to the Italian National Council of Research. So my colleagues of this research council, which and whose multidisciplinary competence is well known everywhere, has transformed the archaeological pinnacle excavation. This was an occasion 
on a multidisciplinary field of research that is still active and has made it possible to carry out innovative analysis in different laboratories, such as those that led to the discovery of wine, perfumes, textile, fibers, and various metallurgical activities, outline the industrial and commercial character of the site. How was the site first discovered? And when, when was this find actually um, conducted? Do we know anything about how it was ultimately destroyed in antiquity? No, the site was very known in medieval period. And uh, there is a long story of why I, I, I check, uh, I, I decide to, to find the settlement of Pyrgos because I start to, use, to study some uh, tombs and then I found one very interesting belonging to a blacksmith. So I asked to a person who... Uh, Maria Gicosti, former director of the Department of Antiquities, but at the time it was 1996, she was with me, uh, surviving all the area, and then uh, we found the place together, but she was involved in, after, in the very important and famous Italian excavation. So me, after preliminary soundings, uh, uh, in 19, 1998, we uh, opened the official uh, uh, excavation uh, of this site. And what we found was uh, really, uh, even in the aspect of the remains were peculiar, and this was clear uh, since the beginning that it was destroyed by an earthquake, um, and so probably an earthquake that now from the last examination and the last research we did, perhaps it was about the 1750 BC. So it's all. And then it was completely abandoned, but we have the frequentation of the site. Probably it remains like a marketplace where the people used to, to for, for in some periods, uh, not very, very frequently, but for example, two, three times in a year to have a big market there because we found the, um, the pottery of a later period until medieval time on the surface suggesting something like that, not more because we don't have any other remains of architectural remains or large vases pointing that it was a village or inhabited by somebody. This site of Birgos, what, what would we consider it? Is it a, a commercial, industrial complex? Is, is it residential? Uh, you know, it's not a city. So, I mean, what, how, how would we best characterize this archaeological site and, and what makes it unique? Or is it, is it not unique? Is this something that was quite common all across Cyprus? Now, there are two things. Now, Pyrgos is, a, is a really, from one side, is a case because 
uh, probably uh, the site started in uh, around uh, the pre-Neolithic or Neolithic period, slowly, slowly enlarging because it is a special position and the confluence of different rivers. So um, when we check the extension of the settlement of the Middle Bronze Age, we found that it was around 35 hectares. So we had the, the incredible uh, case, the fortune to find the, the center of the, of the settlement, uh, belonging to the commercial and the industrial area. Uh, now, it's, uh, it's just, uh, uh, I, I don't think it's a unique purpose. Uh, it's unique only because uh, the first, uh, before the first establishment was uh, certainly uh, metallurgical because we kept the slug, uh, hundreds, hundreds of slugs, and uh, everywhere we found on the bedrock, uh, everywhere. So it's, uh, it, it belongs to the, probably to the early Bronze Age, uh, so just the beginning of the copper production of Cyprus. But uh, the... The, the all the area around the, the excavation, the site, now is completely occupied by the villas. <laughs> it's a luxury villas all around that uh, mm-hmm. cover uh, everything except a small part of the hill where we made soundings and, uh, and we found exactly the same situation. So we found other workshop, metallurgical workshop. Uh, so, I, to be honest, I don't know uh, where where are the houses exactly, but we know where are the, the tombs, where are the necropolises, that actually uh, they are below the, the old village, the old Curio, everywhere. There are hundreds and hundreds of, of tombs everywhere. It, where there is the old Curio. And going, uh, probably uh, arriving uh, on the road to Moni, mm-hmm. and where they found a lot in the past, a lot of Roman shipping with the description of the people and other tombs. So you can imagine the extension of the uh, of the, the the tombs, the necropolis is around. Yeah, you mentioned um, with with this find. This is going to circle back to something you you said earlier. There was metal, metallurgical uh, workshops when this site was first published. You know, they really talked a lot about its significance in perfumery. But I was very surprised later to learn that it wasn't just perfumes that they were producing on this site. We had cosmetics, bronze making, jewels. You mentioned textiles. So with with all that being said, this was this, this sounds like it was a, an incredibly important site to the region, and it, it's just incredible that something like this was you know in, in in our backyard, so to speak, and it's so important to I would assume trade because Cyprus is celebrated for its copper, but can we use this find to say that there was so much more than just copper that Cyprus was involved with in, um, in antiquity? Now, the, for sure, Pyrgos, uh, you have to think of Pyrgos as uh, a modern uh, 
souk, oriental souk, where if you go there, you find people producing and selling everything around. And it was established on a an large metallurgical area and then occupied it in the Middle Bronze Age by other workshops of different things and the luxury everywhere. There are luxury items producing it. And the, so it's, uh, uh, it's it, for example, the, the textiles, the different colored textiles. And uh, probably Cyprus, we know that Cyprus, for example, in the in the in the Renaissance, they used to to sell a lot of, of similar things in Europe. For example, the the Lefkara laces, jewels, and if, if we have reports in very important reports like Leonardo da Vinci and so on, perfumes, cypria, medicine, and many other things, and copper, of course, and. So I, I think that we are not far to think that at the time they made exactly the same thing. Something happened after the Middle Bronze Age, but not only in Pyrgos, all over the island. Uh, we have the, all the, the, the Middle Bronze Age uh, sites abandoned or destroyed, and then... After in the in the late Bronze Age they start again to produce and to sell and of course we have something very interesting for example in the Luburum shipwreck um, that perhaps belongs to Cyprus maybe also or we have a lot of copper well not all from Cyprus some are from Cyprus some not but we found there a lot of other things and spices sold by Cyprus. And we have, for example, other things very interesting in the in the connection, for example, the, the letter of Telamarna and so on. We have a mention of, of Cyprus like exporting gold and ivory. And just recently, you have to think that the reopening of the mining place of producing gold in Cyprus even uh, now, and uh, the connection may be possible even for the ivory, for the dwarf uh, elephants found, you know, the bones. Probably Mm -hmm. they they used to trade even with these things. It is possible because that is mentioned in the written letters. You know, there was one other thing that that I came across in your book that I also found interesting that I doubt it was used for trade, <laughs> and I think this is this is uh, it was a little mysterious. This find the the presence of animal jawbones. There was quite a few of those found. What did uh, what did you and your colleagues hypothesize that those may have been used for? Because there were quite a few that were found in the uh, complex. Uh, now the founding of the jaws was a, a really fun story, and because they were. On the bench inside, the, just in front of the perfumery, uh, the same place, and uh, on the bench, and of course some uh, were on on the floor because uh, they, they, of course, uh, they, this was uh, evidence scattered around, even the small bottles of perfumes, and uh, it was a very uh, strange. Uh, 
foundings and uh, we try to find the, the meaning of this and the, the, the different hypotheses. And uh, there are 12 Jews below, the, the, the below part of the Jew or the cow. And uh, one single uh, horn of deer together. The most probably of the different hypotheses is they were musical percussion instruments, as there is the com- strictly comparison with the, with the actual cuyadas, uh, which are the rattles, is a musical instrument, very famous, played with a deer horn. And there is another small thing that belongs to the time, uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphs of the Jew correspond to the a sound, which is Ertil, rattle. So exactly the same definition of the object of the Kuyaga today. They are rattle. So can you imagine if they are rattles, they belong to a sort of entertainment of the people uh, probably waiting uh, the perfume, something like that, and uh, playing sound uh, in different manner, including Kuyadas, because we don't know if uh, they use other things, for example, reeds, like uh, to make a different kind of music. If anyone, anyone listening gets an opportunity, I strongly, strongly encourage you to Google some of the experimental archaeology that uh, Professor Maria Rosaria has put together. And, and here, I'm, I know this is going to be really difficult to do, but I was hoping, and we're not using pictures here, this is why I hope uh, listeners can look online. Is there any possibility you can explain how this, this process of distilling the sense worked? Because I noticed that there were very peculiar uh, pots, terracotta pots that were placed into pits um, and then another pot would be placed on top and there was a spout that led to yet another pot. And so that leads me to, to wonder as, as someone who is not an expert, what is it that we see happening here? Um, I, presumably this is distillation. And, you know, there was very peculiar designs even on some of the, these terracotta pots. Uh, one spout looks like it has a rope etched into the, into the spout. And, I, and it makes me wonder, you know, what is the significance of some of these designs? So is there any way, as difficult as it might be, to describe how this process of distilling the perfumes was done? For example, did they use fresh or dried plants? Did they did they have to heat the the oils for a certain period of time? I do understand it is a little bit of a difficult question to explain, but I was hoping you could give it a shot. I made different uh, trials of, for distillation. I am working on this and studying distillation since many years now, and there is a different, uh, real different situation. Uh, between what they, uh, they they made, for example, in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, or in Cyprus. So there are different devices and different ingredients 
belonging to, of course, uh, uh, what they had around, I mean, and what he wants to produce. Uh, what we found in Mesopotamia and the Mesopotamian environment of 50 millennium BC, Ubaid period, was really very, very advanced. You cannot imagine how much. They knew very precisely how to use the apparatuses to steal very well. And they, using even advanced system, for example, very famous are the holes in the, in the channel ring around the vase below to recover the, the drops of the walls from the, the, from the cover, uh, taking all the, the, most of the liquid back inside to recycle the, the liquid and to continue distillation for, to have um, an improved product. And this we had in the 50 millennium BC. But this kind of distillation, today we can call indirect distillation. It's very complicated and very advanced. You don't find the same in Cyprus. Cyprus distillation with what we found, the alambic we found, which are complete, and we have a comparison even today in India, exactly the same, including the the, the basin with the two also it's very impressive this this. And they they use it to a direct distillation without the recycling. So it's, it's a different system, and you can think that perhaps the product is different. And of course, there is the question, what they produce, what they want like to produce, a perfume or some alcoholics? Who knows? If we speak about the drugs containing oil and spices, for course, it's our perfumes. It's a very known system to produce oil perfumes. But when you use a distillation, the things is completely different. The case is that in Nubia, Egypt, in the same period like Cyprus, they used exactly the same capital of alambic with the head and the long spout. And very beautiful, very peculiar, and perfect. You can use. We used the, the replica of Pyrgos uh, uh, Alambic. Even distilling in, in the inauguration of the exhibition in front of the, all the people. And they, they work perfectly. I, I made the replicas of Tepe Gavra the most ancient and the, the first and second apparatus, so two different types, and they work perfectly. And what we found is that still today, in next May, of course, in Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and India, they have exactly today the same devices, of course. Wow. They abandoned the, the clay, and now they use the copper. There's something which is very interesting. Now I am studying and uh, publishing another book for 
distillation Aegean, Mycenaean period. And what is I found really continuous in Cyprus, many words uh, have like uh, the root of the words is sip. Like Ciprinol, like uh, mm-hmm. Ciprinus, like uh, Ciprus Longus, and the Hennabel, uh, something like that. And for example, of course, uh, the, there is the, even today the same ingredients they are used in the perfumery, exactly mm-hmm. the same. So we found that uh, coriander, for example, which was very famous producer from Cyprus, so you have generally in the male perfumes everywhere, even today. So uh, it's uh, probably, most probably, they they used to make this kind of perfume, uh, including uh, the ingredients they had around. And for sure they used uh, coriander because we found the seeds. Mm-hmm. In uh, in Pyrgos, we have we found a lot of carbonized seeds, including coriander, including uh, uh, different kind of plants, including myrtle, many other things. And so uh, you can imagine how, but you don't, you never know which kind of uh, of uh, ingredients they use. Uh, of course, it's very very difficult, very <laughs> difficult. When you check with archaeometry, uh, you 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 have to to decide what you want to ask, including the ingredient, to make a comparison. This is the system. There is not a, 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 a system that you put something inside and this will tell you the story. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you you have to to try different ingredients to find the, the, uh, that one which uh, is exactly inside. So uh, until you don't try all the others, you don't know if there are another one. So this is well, this is why is it not possible? <laughs> to, uh, I know, I, and I do understand. You know, there's always just that. Little, little bit of hope, <laughs> but that, yes, I you, do understand it. You can find some, but it's it's more easy to find uh, the, some suggestion because our suggestions from all the other things around the pollens, for example, other things to to have a general idea of what they do, what they did, and um, and but this for sure were green. Uh, plants. This is for sure. We never found a flower, mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's uh, it's a peculiar uh, thing, a, a peculiar perfume, uh, very similar to to Cipre. Well, Maria Rosaria, um, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on to the History of Cyprus podcast and sharing with listeners some of the work that you have been doing and continue to to work on and i again i'm very very grateful for your time thank you Andreas. okay take care thank you so much have a great have a great evening Bye. Bye. bye bye